This is a recording of Serpents of Fire and Brass, a contextual study of the brazen serpent tradition in the Book of Mormon, by Neil Rapley, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Victor Worth. Abstract. The story of the Israelites getting bitten in the wilderness by fiery serpents and then being miraculously healed by the serpent of brass, Numbers 21, 4-9, is one of the most frequently told stories in Scripture, with many of the retellings occurring in the Book of Mormon. Nephi is the first to refer to the story, doing so on two different occasions, 1 Nephi 17:41, 2 Nephi 25:20. In each instance, Nephi utilizes the story for different purposes, which dictated how he told the story and what he emphasized. These two retellings of the brazen serpent narrative combined to establish a standard interpretation of that story among the Nephites, utilized and to some extent developed by later Nephite prophets. In this study, each of the two occasions Nephi made use of this story are contextualized within the iconography and symbolism of pre-exilic Israel and its influences from surrounding cultures. Then the minimal development evident in how this story was interpreted by Nephites across time, is considered, comparing it to the way ancient Jewish and early Christian interpretation of the brazen serpent was adapted over time to address specific needs. Based on this analysis, it seems that not only do Nephi's initial interpretations fit within the context of pre-exilic Israel, but the Book of Mormon's use of the brazen serpent symbol is not stagnant, Rather, it shows indications of having been a real, living tradition that developed along a trajectory comparable to that of authentic ancient traditions. The story of the Israelites getting bitten in the wilderness by fiery serpents, then healed by looking upon the serpent of brass set on a pole, Numbers 21, 4-9, is, according to one writer, quote, one of the most widely attested miracles in Holy Writ, close quote. Perhaps no other book of scripture refers to the story as frequently as the Book of Mormon, which not only has several explicit references to the story, 1 Nephi 17.41, 2 Nephi 25.20, Alma 33.11-20, Helaman 8.13-15, but also makes various typological echoes and allusions to it as part of a larger pattern of Exodus typology occurring throughout the text. Naturally, Nephi is the first writer to use this episode, citing it on two separate occasions and within different contexts, 1st Nephi 17.41, 2nd Nephi 25.20. In each instance, Nephi utilized the story for different purposes, which dictated how he told the story and what he emphasized. Despite their different emphases and contexts, these two retellings of the brazen serpent narrative combined to establish a standard interpretation among the Nephites. Later Book of Mormon prophets used the story essentially in the same ways Nephi, son of Lehi, did, with only minor, albeit somewhat significant, adjustments in the interpretation. See Alma 33, 18-22 and 37:45, Helaman 8, 13-15. Thus, the origins of Nephite interpretations of the brazen serpent episode seem to have emerged from Nephi's world. Therefore, to better understand the Book of Mormon's use of the brazen serpent narrative, 
I will first examine each of the two occasions Nephi made use of that story, contextualizing them within the iconography and symbolism of pre-exilic Israel and its influences from surrounding cultures. In doing this, I will occasionally tie in the later Book of Mormon references to this story as appropriate. Then I will consider the minimal development evident in how this story was interpreted by Nephites across time. Comparing it to the way ancient Jewish and early Christian interpretations of the brazen serpent was adapted over time to address specific needs and consider the circumstances that drove Nephite adaptations as well. Overall, this contextual approach yields a variety of insights into the Book of Mormon's use of this symbol and suggests it was based on an authentic strain of ancient Israelite tradition. Flying Fiery Serpents Nephi's first time relating the story of the brazen serpent occurred while the family was in Bountiful as part of an extended argument with his brothers. Nephi used this story to illustrate the stubbornness of the children of Israel and, by analogy, of Laman and Lemuel themselves. And so his focus is less on the brazen serpent and its meaning and more on the serpents that were sent as a means of chastisement as well as the people's reaction to this punishment. As he tells it here, there are some key differences in the story in contrast to the account given in the Hebrew Bible. In order to create a context in which to interpret how Nephi tells the story and the differences in these accounts, I will draw on the iconography of ancient Judah, origins of serpent symbolism in Israelite religion, the geographic setting of both the original story and Nephi's retelling, and the contested role of a serpent in proper worship of Yahweh, Jehovah, during the 8th through 7th centuries BC. Winged Seraph Serpents in Texts and Iconography As Nephi related the story on this occasion, the Israelites had not merely been bitten by fiery serpents, but flying fiery serpents. 1 Nephi 17.41 In the biblical text, fiery serpents is always a translation of seraph, anglicized as seraph, plural seraphim, which as a verb typically refers to burning, Sometimes it is paired with the word nachash, snake or serpent. Other times, saraf itself, without nachash, refers to a venomous serpent. Thus, when the children of Israel complained about their hardships in the wilderness, quote, the Lord sent fiery serpents, ha-nachashim ha-sarafim, among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Numbers 21.6 in Deuteronomy 8.15, Nahash Saraf are also paired together in reference to the fiery serpent in the wilderness, likely alluding to this same event. In response, the Israelites went to Moses, confessed to their sins, and implored him, quote, Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents, Hanahash, from us. Numbers 21.7 The Lord then instructed Moses, quote, Make thee a fiery serpent, Saraf, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Numbers 21.8 Moses then made a Nachash Nechoshet, serpent of brass, mounted it on a pole, Nes, and those who looked upon it lived. Numbers 21.8-9 
Subsequently, the brazen serpent was installed in the Jerusalem temple until the reign of Hezekiah, when he had it removed and broken to pieces as part of his religious reforms. 2 Kings 18.4 Although the seraphim, seraphim in this story are not described as being able to fly, Isaiah mentioned seraph ma'opep, flying fiery serpents, that lived in the Negev, Isaiah 36, CF 14.29. Generally, the same geographical region where the brazen serpent narrative takes place. Furthermore, seraphim is the same term Isaiah used to describe the fiery angelic beings with six wings that he saw as part of his throne theophany, Isaiah 6, 1-7. The image of a royal or divine symbol flanked on both sides by serpents acting as guardians is common in the ancient Near East, including Israel. In light of this iconography, plus the typical usage of Saraf to refer to a type of serpent, many scholars believe that the angelic seraphim of Isaiah's vision were most likely winged serpent-like beings who acted as guardians of the heavenly throne. In addition, the, quote, source of much of the imagery for Isaiah's vision appears to have come from physical realities that Isaiah regularly saw in the temple, close quote. As such, the seraphim would represent the brazen serpent, the seraph, saraph, the Lord commanded Moses to create, Numbers 21.8, which was mounted on a pole inside the temple precinct at that time. In fact, the discovery of two Israelite bronze bowls depicting winged serpents mounted on poles suggests to some scholars that the brazen serpent itself had wings. As with the royal seals, the scenes depicted on these bronze bowls show a pair of winged serpents guarding a sacred or royal symbol, which could be an indication that in Isaiah's day there actually were two bronze seraphim in the temple, one on each side of the Ark of the Covenant, paralleling the cherubim. Additional Hebrew seals and other artifacts further depict winged serpents, variously with two wings or four wings. Scholars generally equate this winged serpent imagery with the biblical seraph, Saraph. Ironically, much of this iconography is attested during the reign of Hezekiah, the king who reportedly destroyed the brazen serpent. For the most part, Saraph serpent iconography did disappear after the time of Hezekiah perhaps as a result of his efforts to reform Judah and eliminate anything that could be perceived as idol worship. Yet it did not completely vanish. A seal discovered in 2012, found in a 7th century BC home in the part of Jerusalem believed to be Lehi's area of residence, depicts a four-winged seraph serpent, illustrating that the symbol persisted into Lehi's day. This evidence strongly suggests that whatever the actual nature of the serpent's which pastored the children of Israel in the wilderness in the 8th to 7th centuries B.C., seraphim, seraphim, were understood to be flying-winged serpents. In fact, renowned Hebrew scholar Moshe Weinfeld even translated Nachash Saraf as flying serpents. James Charlesworth similarly interpreted the term seraphim as winged serpents, or fiery-winged serpents. Thus, Nephi's reference to flying, fiery serpents reflects the common Israelite understanding of seraph serpents at that time. 
Origins of the Seraph Serpent Tradition Visually, the winged serpents depicted on artifacts from Israel and Judah are clearly inspired by Egyptian iconography. Quote, winged snakes are depicted in Egyptian art and are found frequently in religious texts, close quote, according to Nicole B. Hansen. For example, Manfred Lurker noted, quote, the Book of the Dead crawls with serpent demons, sometimes winged, rearing up or standing on legs, spitting fire or armed with a knife, close quote. More specifically, the Israelite seals and other artifacts reflect the imagery of the Egyptian Urias, the upraised cobra, depicted variously with or without wings, closely associated with the power and protection of the pharaoh. The Urias was also the symbol of the goddess Wajit, who, quote, was sometimes depicted as a winged snake, close quote. Egyptian imagery was in vogue throughout the Syro-Palestinian region, including Israel and Judah in the 9th through 7th centuries BC, so the Egyptian influence on depictions of the seraph serpents comes as no surprise. Most scholars conclude from this that the meaning and symbolism of the seraph serpents has an Egyptian origin, and that the seraph, like the Urias, was a type of cobra. Certainly the Egyptian connection to the seraph serpents is noteworthy in light of Nephi and Lehi's evident knowledge of Egyptian scribal culture, 1 Nephi 1-2. In recent years, however, another theory has emerged that has even more intriguing implications for the Book of Mormon's use of this symbol. Nassim Amzalag, professor of Bible, archaeology, and the ancient Near East at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, has argued that while the imagery used to represent the seraph serpent was influenced by Egyptian iconography, the symbol itself was not an Egyptian import, but rather was native to the southern Levant. More specifically, Amzalag argues that the seraph was the saw-scaled viper common to the desert region south of Judah, and that this snake was adopted as a religious symbol by a community of Yahweh-worshipping metallurgists connected to the copper mines in that same region. Eventually, through trade and migration, members of this community became integrated into the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, infusing a metallurgical dimension into the imagery and symbolism of ancient Israel's theology. Many of the key elements of this theory, the geography, the seraph serpents, the metallurgical component, and of course the worship of Yahweh, come together in the story of the brazen serpent. In light of this model, it is noteworthy that Lehi is said to be from the tribe of Joseph, 1 Nephi 5.14 and 16, Alma 10.3, while the onomastics of Lehi's family, especially the name Lehi itself, share an affinity with names attested in the region around the Gulf of Aqaba, where a tribal kingdom called Lehian emerged in the mid-first millennium B.C. The names Lehi, Laman, and Nephi are all attested in inscriptions from that area, while Lemuel appears to be an Arabian name in the Old Testament, see Proverbs 31, 1 and 4, and Sam is, quote, the normal Arabic form of Shem, according to Hugh Nibley. Furthermore, based on several clues in the text, it appears Lehi was a metalworker, and scholars have even hypothesized that he regularly traveled to the mines near the Gulf of Aqaba to obtain copper supplies. Thus, if Amzalag's theory is correct, 
Lehi's personal background converges with that of the community for whom the son of serpent was an important religious symbol. As such, it is plausible that Lehi had ties to that community, and thus the brazen serpent narrative would have held particular theological import to him and his family. Serpent Symbolism in Ritual Metallurgy The very last act Nephi performed before he was confronted by his brother the Bountiful was to, quote, make tools of the ore which he did molten out of the rock, 1 Nephi 17.16. Nephi had been guided to that ore by the Lord, verses 9-10, through 10, after which he constructed bellows for blowing the fire and then ignited the flames to molten the ore, verse 11. In the modern developed world, all this strikes the reader as an entirely mundane event. In antiquity, however, these metallurgical processes would have held religious and ritualistic meaning. According to Amzalag, there was a, quote, ritual dimension of metallurgy that became an esoteric and hidden fundament of the religions in the southern Levant and more generally in the ancient Near East, close quote. Due to its esoteric and mysterious nature, some regarded metalworking as one of the angelic arts, a piece of divine wisdom taught to mankind by beings from the heavenly realm. Quote, to possess this wisdom made one as wise as an angel, close quote, explained Marker Barker. The essence of this wisdom was, quote, a body of knowledge and practices which gave power over creation when used in conjunction with supernatural forces, close quote. This is exactly what some believed the ancient metal worker could do, since the earth and firmament were perceived as being made from metal, ancient metallurgists were believed to wield the very powers of creation. The language used to refer to theophanies in biblical texts can be interpreted as describing the celestial domain as a giant furnace, with the Lord blowing through bellows and toyer to stoke the flames, a pillar of smoke and fire emanating out the top, and the glory, kabod of the Lord symbolized by the radiant glow of the molten ore. Thus, at least symbolically, quote, Yahweh revealed himself to the smith at his work, close quote. For Nephi, the opportunity to finally light a fire, after being unable to for at least a portion of their journey, 1 Nephi 17, 12-13, and practice his metallurgical craft, was an opportunity to receive divine instruction, see the glory of the Lord, and feel the Lord working through him. For our purposes, of particular significance is the way the metallurgical process of taking a copper rod or scepter, mate, remelting it into molten, liquefied copper, nachachet, then refashioning it into a new rod or other object, imitates the miraculous sign the Lord gave to Moses of turning his staff or rod, mate, into a serpent, nachash, and then back into a staff. Exodus 4, 1 through 5, 7, 8 through 13. In addition to the similarity between the Hebrew terms for serpent, nachash, and copper, nechoshet, molten or liquefied copper would resemble a serpent, an especially fiery serpent, as it, quote, winds on the ground before solidification, close quote. This resemblance would naturally be evident to an ancient metal worker in the story of Moses forging a fiery serpent, Nechash out of copper, Nechoshet, as well, 
Numbers 21.8-9. In Exodus, the transformation of Moses' rod into a serpent is meant as a sign to Israel that Moses was sent by the Lord. Exodus 4.5. In other words, close quote, in the eyes of an ancient smith or smelter at least, quote, the wonder becomes a demonstration of Moses' metallurgical skill. Quote. With the implication that by demonstrating such skill, Moses established his quote, status as emissary of Yahweh in the eyes of the Israelites. Quote. In the context of 1 Nephi 17, Nephi had just engaged in the process of bringing ore to its molten state and reshaping it, and did so with direct assistance from the Lord, thereby demonstrating his own status as one commissioned by the Lord to perform his task. Then his brothers enter the scene, murmur, and deride him, calling him a fool, and denying that he was, quote, instructed of the Lord, 1 Nephi 17, 17-18. When Nephi mentions the flying fiery serpents in his response, verse 41, it seems deliberately crafted to evoke the symbolism of the rod-to-serpent transformation, which was related to the metallurgical process as described above. After the Lord brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, Nephi says, quote, And he did straighten them in the wilderness with his rod, for they hardened their hearts even as ye have. And the Lord straightened them because of their iniquity. He sent flying fiery serpents among them. 1 Nephi 17.41 The parallelism of the verse seems to suggest that the Lord's method of straightening the Israelites with his rod is equated with the seraph serpents biting the Israelites, a natural association in light of the pervasive use of the rod or staff as a serpentine symbol in the ancient Near East, including the Exodus narratives. In the immediate context of Nephi's narrative, however, he seems to have alluded specifically to the rod-to-serpent transformation performed by Moses and Aaron, and symbolized by taking solid copper in the form of a rod and bringing it into a molten state reminiscent of a fiery serpent. The fact that Nephi himself had just performed a similar act of metallurgy signified that he, like Moses, had encountered the Lord's glory and been sent as his emissary, directly countering his brother's claims. It further illustrated that, also contrary to his brother's claims, Nephi was no fool. He possessed the wisdom of angels, bestowed by divine instruction. Seraph Serpents Along Lehi's Trail As elaborated in the previous section, there is a convergence in Nephi's text of ritual metallurgy, worship of the Lord, and his reference to flying fiery serpents. There is also a geographical component to the winged serpent traditions that intersects with the primary setting of 1 Nephi. Biblical Assyrian and Greek sources from the 8th to 5th centuries B.C., all consistently identify the Sinai and the desert regions south of Judah as the place of the flying serpents. Isaiah identifies the fiery flying serpent, Saraf Moopep, as one of the fearsome beasts of the Negev wilderness, Isaiah 36. Esarhaddon, an Assyrian king, reported seeing, quote, yellow snakes spreading wings, close quote, while marching his army through this same region in 671 B.C., Herodotus, a 5th century B.C. Greek historian, went to, quote, a place in Arabia somewhere near the city of Buto, 
in order to learn about the winged serpents. Histories 2.75 Bhutto was a city in the Nile Delta in Egypt. Thus, the location Herodotus is referring to would be somewhere around the Egyptian Sinai border or the northwest Arabian desert. According to legends of that time, quote, when spring arrives, winged serpents fly from Arabia toward Egypt, close quote, but were stopped at the Egyptian Sinai border by the ibis bird, Histories 275. In that area, Herodotus said that he encountered, quote, the bones and spines of serpents, close quote, laying in, quote, heaps, large and small, Histories 275. Quote, the snake has a form like that of the water snake and bears wing-like membranes that lack feathers, quite similar to the wings of a bat, Histories 276. The encounter narrated in Numbers 21, 4 through 9, specifically is set in the region near the Gulf of Aqaba, also known as the Gulf of Elat. In this region, archaeologists have uncovered a copper serpent in a tent shrine near the Timna copper mines dated to the late bronze, early Iron Age. This site bears no direct relationship with the Exodus, but for our purpose, it is noteworthy that the worshippers there were almost certainly metal workers, and Amzalag argues it was among the earliest sanctuaries dedicated to Yahweh. Upon his initial departure, 1 Nephi 2, 1-5, through 5, Lehi went directly into this same winged serpent-infested region, described in all these sources. The exact route followed out of Jerusalem cannot be known with certainty, but Warren Aston most recently proposed a route that would lead southwest out of Jerusalem, down toward Beersheba, through the Negev past Timna, and the Gulf of Aqaba. This course would have taken them through Maktesh Ramon, where numerous fossils of extinct amphibian species are visible that Karen Radner argues could be interpreted as the bones of winged snakes. Radner thus proposes that this was the place of winged snakes referred to in the accounts of both Herodotus and Esarhaddon. After traveling through this region, Lehi's family established their first long-term encampment in the Valley of Lemuel, 1 Nephi 2, 6-8, a location that would have been only a few days away from the Timna copper mines, a place scholars believe Lehi was familiar with due to his profession as a metalworker. Nephi and his brothers traveled back and forth between here and Jerusalem at least two additional times, 1 Nephi 3-4 and 7. It is not until 1 Nephi 16, 11-12 that Nephi reports the family's departure from this area. Thus, the bulk of the narrative in 1 Nephi takes place in this region between Jerusalem and the Red Sea, in the midst of the traditional habitat associated with the winged seraph serpents. Despite this contact and proximity to the region most closely associated with winged serpents, Nephi did not appeal to the episode in Numbers 21 and the flying fiery serpents, during this time. While staying in this region, however, the Lehites obtained two artifacts made of brass, nechoshet, the plates of brass, 1 Nephi 5, and the ball of fine brass later identified as the Liahona, 1 Nephi 16.10, CF Alma 37.38. Scholars have suggested that each of these are framed symbolically as the serpent of brass, nechash nechoshet, in Nephi's Exodus typology. The Liahona in particular is noteworthy as a type for the brazen serpent, because not only was it made of brass, 
but it was used to look upon in order to gain knowledge from the Lord, 1 Nephi 16.26, a process known anciently as divination. Both serpents and metallurgy were symbolically associated with divination, and the Hebrew root for divination or enchantment, nachash, was closely associated to the terms used for serpent and copper, or brass or bronze. Furthermore, in some cultures, metalworkers used copper paraphernalia in their divination rituals. Thus, the term Nachash Nechoshet, serpent of brass, may have also evoked, to Nephi at least, the notion of diviner of brass, e.g. a copper or bronze object used in divination, such as the Liahona. Nephi's direct citation of the brazen serpent narrative occurred when the family had arrived in Bountiful, 1 Nephi 17.41, which lay on the southern shores of Arabia in the frankincense-producing region of Dofar. The South Arabian cultures that occupied Yemen and controlled the trade in frankincense certainly had their own serpent-based iconography, symbolism, and traditions. For example, a cast bronze snake was found near Al-Hadda, with the name of the god Wad inscribed on it, the deity associated with snakes in the South Arabian pantheon. In southeastern Arabia, northern Oman, Archaeologists have uncovered one of the most extensive sites of serpent worship in all the ancient Near East. As with the serpent iconography of the southern Levant, the worship of snakes in Oman appears to be connected to copper mining and metallurgy. Perhaps most relevant, Herodotus not only talked about, quote, winged serpents, close quote, near the border of Egypt and Arabia, as already mentioned, but he also reported that the region, quote, where frankincense grows, Great numbers of winged serpents, which are small and have variegated markings, carefully guard each frankincense tree. Histories 3.107 The stories and claims Herodotus makes about these winged serpents are quite fanciful, leaving scholars puzzled as to what he could possibly be referring to. While the details are likely garbled and exaggerated, laborers gathering incense surely encountered venomous snakes during their work. Other classical sources more realistically refer to snakes that leap or jump out of their prey. For instance, Strabo, writing in the first centuries B.C. or A.D., described, quote, snakes a spitame long and red in color that can jump as far as a hair and make an incurable bite, close quote, living in the territory of the Sabaeans. Geography 16, 419. Both the Egyptian cobra and the saw-scaled viper the main candidates for the biblical seraph serpents, are also known in Yemen and Dofar, where frankincense grows. The saw-scaled viper is an especially good candidate for the frankincense tree guarding winged serpents. It is known to get into bushes and small trees to prey on birds, and often has a reddish color consistent with Strabo's description. Thus, while traveling through South Arabia and staying in the Dofar region, Lehi and his family would have encountered the same snake species found in the desert south of Judah and identified with the seraph serpents from biblical tradition. At least by the time of Herodotus, who wrote about a hundred years after Lehi's journey, local South Arabian legends apparently referred to these snakes as being winged and able to fly. This means that between both the Valley of Lemuel and Bountiful, the two locations where most of Nephi's narrative takes place, 
the Lehite group had spent a large portion of their time near or within the habitat of the seraph serpents. As such, when Nephi reminded his brothers of the flying fiery serpents sent by the Lord to chastise the children of Israel for their murmuring, 1 Nephi 17.41, it would have held a relevance that is often lost on readers today. They too were traveling and camping in regions believed to be infested by flying serpents. And if they were not faithful, the Lord could just as easily punish them by unleashing those dangerous snakes. Suppression of the Seraph Serpent As mentioned previously, in ancient Israel, the Seraph Serpent iconography largely proliferated in the 9th through 8th centuries BC, after which it faded out and disappeared. The reason for this is likely connected to Hezekiah's removal of the brazen serpent from the temple. See 2 Kings 18.4. Prior to that time, the brazen serpent evidently played some kind of role in Israelite worship, but its exact function is not known for certain. It is possible it was more strongly associated with the traditions and worship practices of northern Israelites, which may be why the biblical authors give it such scant attention. Most likely, given the story in Numbers 21, it was used in some kind of ritual wherein worshippers would seek to invoke the Lord's healing power. Victor Hurwitz has even argued that the text of Numbers 21, 4-9 was a kind of invocation or prayer that the worshipper would ritually recite while burning incense and looking upon the mounted serpent of bronze. This means that the Lord's promise, quote, that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it, the brazen serpent, shall live, Numbers 21, 8, was believed to be active and ongoing for generations of Israelite worshippers prior to the reign of Hezekiah. Furthermore, based on multilingual wordplays involving the Hebrew terms for live, Chaya, Chai, Chava, and snake, Nachash, with the Aramaic term for snake, Chavai, and the Akkadian terms for live, life, Naashu, Nishu, Hurwitz argues that the passage would invite worshippers, quote, to use a brazen serpent, not only to treat snake bites, but to give life, close quote, more generally. For centuries then, humble Israelites with a variety of ailments evidently sought the Lord's healing power by approaching the brazen serpent, believing the promise given to Moses still applied in their own day, quote, that everyone that looketh upon it shall live, close quote. All of that changed, however, when Hezekiah had the object destroyed, 2 Kings 18.4, reportedly in connection with extensive reforms of Israelite religion. There is ongoing debate among biblical scholars as to the historical reality of, and if real, the nature, extent, and purpose of Hezekiah's reforms. But most scholars agree that the destruction of the brazen serpent is a historically authentic detail. Whatever the exact nature and purpose of its removal, it is clear that the account of this event, as recorded in the Deuteronomistic History, 2 Kings 18.4, shows disdain for this object and the worship practices connected to it. Richard Lederman, a professor of Bible and religion at Georgetown University, argues that this account is a, quote, Deuteronomic polemic against forbidden forms of worship, close quote, patterned after Deuteronomy 12.3 CF 7.5, thus characterizing the brazen serpent as the idolatrous image of a foreign god, inauthentic to true Israelite religion, 
despite its reputed mosaic origins. The declaration of it as Nehushtan, Nehushtan, is probably not a proper name as typically translated, but rather a pejorative dismissal of the object as just a piece of bronze or copper, unworthy of worship. According to Leslie S. Wilson, quote, during or just after the period of King Josiah and the Deuteronomist reporters, close quote, the, quote, serpentine, Nahash, traditions became a symbol of all things evil and abhorrent to Yahweh, close quote. In contrast, ancient metallurgists like Lehi and Nephi, especially given their ties to the northern kingdom of Israel, likely viewed the brazen serpent as a legitimate Yahwistic symbol and an authentic and integral part of Israelite worship. Both serpent symbolism and the metallurgical arts were traits of the ancient wisdom tradition, a tradition that the Deuteronomists disapproved of and sought to change. This controversy over the origin and legitimacy of the brazen serpent may very well be lurking in the background of Nephi's expansion and commentary on the brazen serpent narrative. As certain Book of Mormon scholars have previously argued, it appears Lehi and Nephi embraced at least parts of the ancient wisdom traditions that the Deuteronomistic school vehemently opposed. In contrast, Laman and Lemuel were apparently ideologically aligned with the Deuteronomist movement as is most evident in their criticism of Nephi just before he gave his speech mentioning the brazen serpent narrative, 1 Nephi 17.22. As already discussed, Nephi's metallurgical activity just before he was confronted by his brothers established his bona fides based on pre-Deuteronomistic traditions as one sent like Moses, cf. Deuteronomy 18.15-18. Thus, the conflict between Nephi and his brothers in 1 Nephi 17 is a microcosm of a larger debate over the proper form of Israelite religion that was going on at the time. With that in mind, consider a key difference between the account in Numbers 21, 4-9 and Nephi's version of the same story. In Nephi's version, there's a group of people unmentioned in the biblical account who refused to look upon the brazen serpent. Quote, And after they were bitten, he prepared a way that they might be healed, and the labor which they had to perform were to look. And because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many which perished. And they did harden their hearts from time to time, and they did revile against Moses and also against God. 1 Nephi 17, 41-42 Alma too mentioned this additional detail indicating that it continued to play a part in the Nephites' brazen serpent tradition. Quote, but few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. But there were many which were so hardened that they would not look, therefore they perished. Now the reason that they would not look is because they did not believe that it would heal them. Alma 33, 20-21 A similar tradition implying that some did not look and thus perished is found in later Jewish sources. If generations of Israelites had continued to look upon the brazen serpent seeking the Lord's healing power, then the tradition of those who would not look because they did not believe it to be efficacious may have developed after Hezekiah destroyed it as a polemical response to the desecration and denunciation of the serpent symbol in Deuteronomistic ideology. To those who still believed and followed a pre-reformed version of Yahweh worship, 
it was the Deuteronomistic elite in Jerusalem who rejected the simple and easy way prepared by the Lord, who failed to understand, quote, the meaning of those things, close quote. That is, the meaning of the serpent and the worship practices involving it. For that they were doomed to perish, as Lehi had prophesied, and as was fulfilled when the Babylonians destroyed the city. 1 Nephi 1, 13, 2 Kings 25. By aligning themselves with the Deuteronomists, Laman and Lemuel were joining the ranks of those who, quote, did harden their hearts, close quote. Although they claimed to revere Moses and worship Yahweh according to the law, by rejecting a Yahwistic symbol attributed to Moses, they were actually reviling against them both. The serpent raised up in the wilderness. When Nephi was speaking to his brothers in Bountiful, he did not provide an interpretation of the brazen serpent itself. Later, when Nephi appealed to this story again while commenting on the prophecies of Isaiah, 2 Nephi 25.1, the context and setting was different. His conflicts with his brothers were largely behind him, and he had shifted his attention to, quote, proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ, 2 Nephi 11.4, an event he had seen in vision, 1 Nephi 11. He appealed to Isaiah as an eyewitness who had also seen the Redeemer in vision. 2 Nephi 11.2. Thus, his focus shifted away from the Israelites' reaction to the punishing poisonous serpents and onto the serpent which Moses did raise up, that is, the brazen serpent itself, 2 Nephi 25.20. Nephi used the serpent that Moses did raise up as an illustration of the Lord's power to deliver and save, which he then implicitly connected to the Messiah he had seen lifted up upon the cross. 1 Nephi 11.33 Quote, For according to the words of the prophets, the Messiah cometh, and his name should be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as the Lord God liveth that brought Israel up out of the land of Egypt, and gave unto Moses power that he should heal the nations, after that they had been bitten by the poisonous serpents, if they would cast their eyes unto the serpent which he did raise up before them, yea, behold, I say unto you, that as these things are true, and as the Lord God liveth, there is none other name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ of which I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. 2 Nephi 25, 19-20 According to the Gospel of John, Jesus himself made a similar association. Quote, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 14-15 Douglas W. Ullman reasoned that this passage, quote, captures the main thought of Numbers 21, 4-9 and applies it to Jesus Christ's death, close quote. Explaining, quote, The Lord provided only one means of salvation from the snake bites, the bronze serpent. If anyone refused to look at the uplifted serpent, he was not healed. In a similar way, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day disbelieved that Jesus was the Messiah, John 13, thereby rejecting God's means of providing them with eternal life. Yet God had provided Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. If anyone refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, he was not saved. Quote. The story is used quote, as an illustration of God's plan for salvation through Jesus Christ, close quote, the Gospel of John, quote, does not suggest that the bronze serpent is a type of Christ, close quote. 
Ullman concludes that, as used in the Gospel of John, quote, the bronze serpent was not intended to be a prediction of any of the details of Jesus' vicarious death, but several points of similarity between the lifting up of the serpent and the lifting up of Jesus Christ made the bronze serpent an appropriate symbol, close quote. Brandy Gardner has similarly argued that, quote, Nephi is not using the brazen serpent incident typologically, but rather as evidence of Yahweh's power as manifest through a prophet, close quote. It is true that Nephi, like Jesus himself in John 3, 14-15, did not explicitly say that the serpent was a type for Christ. And nothing Nephi said suggests that the serpent was a prophecy of his crucifixion. Yet Nephi did implicitly compare Jesus Christ and the brazen serpent as an illustration that there is no other means of salvation but Christ, precisely as used in John 314 14-15, according to Ullman. As S. Kent Brown explained, quote, Nephi highlighted the brazen serpent incident, along with the Lord's guidance of the Israelites and his gift of water from the rock, as indisputable evidences of Jehovah's power to save temporally as well as spiritually. Nephi swore an oath that as these things are true and as the Lord God liveth, there is none other name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ, whereby man can be saved. Second Nephi 25.20 Hereby Nephi drew attention to the link between Moses' actions and Jesus' atonement. Close quote from Brown. Of course, Nephi predates the Gospel of John by several centuries, so it is significant that James Charlesworth argues that this, quote, Imagery and symbolism are reflected in Jewish thought long before the composition of the fourth gospel. Quote. As previously noted, it is difficult to completely recover the role and meaning of the seraph serpent in the pre-reform Israelite religion, which may have influenced Nephi's thinking. Furthermore, its meaning was probably somewhat fluid rather than fixed. As Jacqueline Tabic observed, quote, it is obvious that the interpretations of a symbol can be made from many possible viewpoints, and it should also be obvious that the interpretation is bound to be a subjective one, influenced by the cultural background and personal experience of the interpreter. Quote. Thus, Nephi's interpretation needn't be assumed to represent a universally applied interpretation of the brazen serpent among ancient Israelites. But it should make sense in light of his, quote, cultural background and personal experience, close quote. Nephi himself had just stressed the importance of understanding the cultural background of Scripture, the manner of the Jews, in order to be able to interpret it, 2 Nephi 25, 1-6. Furthermore, although Nephi was clearly commenting on the narrative in Numbers 21, 4-9, he was not interpreting it in a vacuum. Rather, it was part of his larger commentary on Isaiah 2-14, which was just quoted, 2 Nephi 12-24. This block of text includes two other key passages that refer to seraph serpents, Isaiah 6, 2 Nephi 16, and Isaiah 14, 28 32, 2 Nephi 24, 28 32, and three passages referring to standards which are lifted up, Isaiah 5, 26, 2 Nephi 15, 26, Isaiah 11, 10 and 12, 2 Nephi 21, 10 and 12, and Isaiah 13, 2, 2 Nephi 23, 2. Thus, to understand Nephi's commentary here on the narrative in Numbers 21, 4 through 9, 
I will consider that narrative together with these Isaiah passages, as well as the cultural background of serpent symbolism and iconography in ancient Israel and the ancient Near East more generally. I will specifically discuss the use of serpents as symbols of healing, life, immortality, resurrection, salvation, purification, and atonement, as representations of the Messiah and kingship more generally, divine messengers and dispensers of justice, and members of the heavenly hosts, as well as the use of serpents on deified battle standards, all of which are roles, functions, and attributes that at least some ancient Israelites close to Nephi's time likely connected to the seraph serpent. When discussing each of these qualities of serpent symbolism, I will also consider Book of Mormon commentary on the brazen serpent story against this cultural background, and Nephi's personal experiences, especially his visions, illustrating that such commentary makes logical sense as an interpretation of a pre-exilic symbol. Healing As previously mentioned, the primary association of the seraph symbol in Israelite religion was likely one of healing, especially healing from snake bites with Numbers 21, 4 through 9, possibly functioning as a ritual text recited by the worshiper as they looked upon the brazen serpent. Healing was one of the most widespread and common meanings of the serpent in ancient Near Eastern symbolism. According to Charlesworth, the serpent was, quote, the quintessential symbol of healing, health, and rejuvenation in the ancient Near East, including Palestine, from circa 1850 BCE to at least 135 CE. Mache Munish similarly notes that, quote, throughout the entire Near East, the snake was considered a symbol of health and even immortality, close quote. Nephi understood that the brazen serpent represented the, quote, power to heal the nations, 2 Nephi 25.20, and Alma likewise emphasized the healing function of the serpent, Alma 33.21-22. Just before telling the story of Moses raising the brazen serpent, Nephi explained that Jesus Christ would, quote, rise from the dead with healing in his wings, 2 Nephi 25.13. Life, Immortality, and Resurrection Closely connected to its healing function, serpents were also often associated with life. As already pointed out, Horowitz argues that multilingual word plays with terms for snake and life in Numbers 21, 4-9 suggests that the brazen serpent not only healed, but gave life. Amy Birkin also argues that this narrative puts emphasis on the serpent as more than merely a means of healing, but as, quote, the chief emblem of new life, close quote. In many ancient Near Eastern myths, it is paradoxically, quote, the slaying of the dragon or serpent that provides life, close quote. As Munish mentioned above, the life-giving powers of the serpent were not limited to mortal life, but included the power to give immortality, and thus it was often associated with resurrection, life after death, and eternity. As Munish further explains, quote, This was usually connected with snakes shedding their skins, which made a semblance of rebirth into eternity. Close quote. Likewise, in Egypt, according to Lurker, quote, The snake, because it sloughs its skin, became a symbol of survival after death, close quote. After talking about how the, quote, type was raised up in the wilderness, that whosoever would look upon it might live, Alma 33, 19, 
Alma encouraged his Zoramite audience to, quote, cast about your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God, that he shall rise again from the dead, which shall bring to pass the resurrection. Alma 33.22 In a more cryptic allusion to the story, discussed in some detail later, Alma said, quote, If we will look, we may live forever. Alma 37.46 As noted above, Nephi, son of Lehi, spoke of Jesus Christ, quote, rising from the dead with healing in his wings, 2 Nephi 25.13, shortly before he related how the Israelites, quote, would cast their eyes under the serpent, close quote, to be healed. Soon thereafter, he stressed that the purpose of this teaching was so his posterity would, quote, look forward unto that life which is in Christ, 2 Nephi 25, 20, and 27. Later, Nephi, son of Helaman, most strongly associated the symbol with Christ's life-giving power, quote, Yea, did Moses not bear record that the Son of God should come? And as he lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, even so should he be lifted up which should come. And as many as should look upon that serpent should live, even so, as many as should look upon the Son of God with faith, having a contrite spirit, might live, even unto that life which is eternal. Helaman 8, 14-15 Salvation Given these healing and life-giving associations, it was only natural that the serpent would also become a symbol of salvation, quote, since healing and salvation are cognitively synonymous, close quote, according to Charlesworth. Andrew Skinner observes, quote, as a bringer of salvation and giver of everlasting life, the snake becomes a divine reptile, close quote, in ancient Near Eastern conceptions. A prime example of this comes from the apocryphal Wisdom of Solomon, a pre-Christian Jewish text. Retelling the story of when the Israelites, quote, perished with the stings of crooked serpents, close quote, the author refers to the brazen serpent as, quote, a sign of salvation to put them in remembrance of the commandments of thy law. Wisdom of Solomon 16, 5 and 6. Quote, under God's command, close quote, explained Emerson B. Powery, quote, Moses created a bronze serpent to symbolize God's salvation, close quote. When Nephi compared Christ to the serpent, he stressed that it is by Jesus Christ, quote, whereby man can be saved, 2 Nephi 25.20. And Alma mentioned that, quote, he will come to redeem his people, Alma 33.22. Purification and Atonement The role of the seraphim in Isaiah's vision both overlaps with and extends the symbolic meaning of the seraph serpents in Numbers 21. When Isaiah begins to fear because he, quote, a man of unclean lips, quote, quote, had seen the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6, 5, it is a seraph who comes to purify him with, quote, a live coal, declaring, quote, thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged, verses 6 through 7. As such, this purifying function is an extension of the healing connotations of serpents generally, one that particularly makes sense when speaking of fiery or burning seraph serpents. Legrand Davies argues the verb saraf, to burn, is primarily used to refer to the cleansing, purifying, or refining of ritual objects, people, cities, etc., and that this was the purpose of the seraph serpents in the wilderness, as well as the function of the seraphim in Isaiah 6, quote, 
the seraphim acted as the agents of the cleansing fire to Isaiah, as the cleansing or fiery serpents of the wilderness acted on the Israelites. Close quote. The connections to purification are further strengthened by the use of the roots saraf to burn and the homophonic tzaraf to refine earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah 1, 7 and 25, and the use of litzpah for the burning coal in Isaiah 6, 6, forming word plays with seraphim. Quote, the prophet and the people are unclean and sinful, observed Peter D. Miscall. Quote, cleanness and innocence are achieved by burning and refining both the prophet and the people. In the process, the guilt, the dross, is removed. Close quote. Thus, Udo Rutensvorden called this, quote, an atonement act. Close quote. And Karen Rudolph Joins noted that to Isaiah these, quote, Winged serpents are agents of divine redemption and healing. Close quote. Nephi most likely interpreted Isaiah's vision in context with Lehi's own throne theophany, 1 Nephi 1, 6-14, in which case he probably identified the seraph who purged Isaiah's sins with the, quote, one descending out of the midst of heaven, close quote, in Lehi's vision, a figure usually interpreted to be Jesus Christ, 1 Nephi 1, 9. Since, as one biblical scholar put it, quote, the seraph that cleanses Isaiah may function as a symbolic allusion to the seraph in Numbers 21.8 that heals the children of Israel, close quote, it is significant that Nephi talked about looking upon the brazen serpent in the context of teaching his posterity, quote, to what source they may look for remission of their sins, 2 Nephi 25.26, the very function of the serpent in Isaiah 6.7. Likewise, when comparing Christ to the seraph Moses, quote, raised up in the wilderness, close quote, Alma said he would, quote, come to redeem his people, close quote, and, quote, atone for their sins, Alma 33, 19 and 22. Both roles scholars have associated with the actions of the seraph in Isaiah 6. Messiah, kingship. Snakes also acted as guardians throughout the ancient world. As mentioned previously, this was a common function of the seraph serpent in Judean iconography in the 8th century BC. And the role is also evident in Isaiah 6, where the seraphs are acting as guardians or gatekeepers of the heavenly throne and the divine council. In both Egyptian and Judean iconography, the protective function of the seraph in Judah and Urias in Egypt is prominently linked to the king and royal symbolism. Nicole B. Hansen explained, quote, the Urias was the image of the Egyptian cobra, Naha Haje, worn in the front of the king's headdress. Thus, the Urias came to be considered a protector of kingship. Quote. Eventually, such prominent displays of the protective Urias led to its adoption as not only a protector or guardian, but also as a direct symbol of royalty, authority, and kingship itself. As Charlesworth explains, quote, the Urias was placed in royal palaces and on the heads of pharaohs to symbolize their godly and kingly powers. Quote. This same conflation appears to have taken place in Judean iconography. While, as mentioned earlier in this article, the winged serpent was typically depicted as guardian or guardians of a royal symbol. In some instances, quote, the winged seraph alone seems to symbolize Judean kingship. 
close quote. Isaiah evidently drew upon this royal imagery when he warned Philistia, quote, Rejoice not, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a viper, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Isaiah 14.29 In this passage, the serpent, viper, and flying seraph serpent are presented as the root, trunk, and fruit of the tree and thus represent succeeding generations of rulers. According to Sean Zelig Astor, quote, the root represents previous generations, the trunk represents the present, and the fruit represents the future. Each of the types of serpents mentioned is more rare and more dangerous than the previous one, close quote. Thus, the flying seraph serpent is a future royal figure who will subjugate the Philistines and protect Zion. Isaiah 14, 29-32. Given its use of Judean royal iconography, a flying seraph serpent, combined with imagery used elsewhere in Isaiah 11, 1, to refer to a future Davidic king or new David, this passage naturally lends itself to messianic interpretations. As John and Oswald pointed out, if this is interpreted as, quote, a reference to the Jewish nation or the Davidic monarchy, close quote, then, quote, the Messiah is the flying serpent, close quote. Indeed, at least by the early centuries A.D., that is precisely how Jewish interpreters were reading the passage, as illustrated by the Targumic rendering, quote, Rejoice not, all ye Philistines, because the ruler who was subjugating you is broken. For from the sons of the sons of Jesse, the Messiah will come forth, and his deeds will be among you as a wounding serpent. Targum to Isaiah 14.29. At least one modern scholar similarly argued, quote, the broader meaning of Isaiah 14.28-32 seems to be that from the root of Judah, the serpent's root, the deliverer shall come to save Israel. This one is symbolized as a flying serpent, close quote. In light of the interpretation in the Targums, Bruce Chilton suggests, quote, it may just be that the connection between serpent imagery and messianic thinking was something of a conventional one. Quote. In the Book of Mormon, both Nephi, son of Lehi, and Nephi, son of Helaman, used the title Messiah for Jesus Christ when making the comparison with the brazen serpent. Second Nephi 25:19, Helaman 8:13. Furthermore, just as ancient Jewish interpreters reasoned that the Israelites had to look upon the brazen serpent with, quote, a long and insistent gaze, close quote, to be healed of a snake bite. So Nephi taught that if his people, quote, look forward with steadfastness unto Christ, i.e. the Messiah, close quote, they would be made alive, Second Nephi 25, 24-25. Divine Messenger and Dispenser of Justice Isaiah 14.29 also clearly reflects, quote, the use of the serpent and the pit viper to symbolize God's messenger. Quote. As discussed earlier, the transformation of the rod or staff, mate, into a serpent, nachash, was used as a sign that Moses had truly been sent as Yahweh's messenger to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Exodus 4, 1-5. Similar imagery is at play in Isaiah 14:29, where the broken rod or scepter, shevet, becomes the serpent's root, Mishalash Nachash, from whence God's emissary emerges as 
a fiery flying serpent, Saraf Mo'apep. Likewise, according to Isaac J. de Hulster, quote, the seraphs of Isaiah 6 might be understood as carrying out an intermediary role as a type of divine messenger, close quote. Other biblical passages likewise identify serpents being commissioned or sent by God to accomplish a specific task, e.g. Genesis 49.17, Amos 9.3. In these passages, as Amzalak explained, the serpent is, quote, Yahweh's faithful emissary, involved in protecting the people of Israel and even individuals among this collective, close quote. As God's messenger, the serpent was frequently associated with judgment. Charlesworth noticed, quote, often biblical authors choose the serpent to symbolize the agent of God's judgment, usually punishment, close quote. For example, Trevor Cockle argues that the flying seraph in Isaiah 14, 28 through 31, quote, behaves much as the Urias in an Egyptian royal context, close quote, bringing, quote, fiery destruction upon the enemies of the true king, Yahweh, and his people. The mythical fiery serpent, Seraph Urias, is the symbol of Yahweh's judgment, close quote. This meaning is evident in the brazen serpent narrative, where the Seraph serpents were sent or released by the Lord to punish the Israelites for their murmuring. Numbers 21.6. In Egypt, the serpent mounted on a pole or standard was often used to represent Pharaoh's judgment against his enemies, a symbol that Numbers 21 seems to invert by using the same iconography, a serpent mounted on a pole, as a means of sparing the Israelites of a negative judgment. Serpents did not exclusively convey the negative aspect of judgment. Charlesworth proclaims, quote, the serpent symbolizes God's messenger who brings justice, judgment, and goodness, close quote. As Davies puts it, quote, the subtlety of the serpent exemplifies the justice of God, which knows no bounds and can seek out the righteous or wicked anywhere to bring forth justice, close quote. In Greco-Roman culture, according to Skinner, it was perceived that, quote, the serpent could give life or take it, let another creature live or cause it to die by invoking, as it were, a kind of instant judgment in deciding to strike or not. Thus, it could naturally symbolize God's judgment to both reward the righteous and punish the wicked. Once again, this very dualism is at play in Numbers 21, quote, where the snake is seen as the messenger of both life and death, close quote, as Tabak points out. When Alma compared Christ to the brazen serpent, he mentioned, quote, that all men shall stand before him to be judged at the last and judgment day according to their works. Alma 33.22 Nephi likewise emphasized the coming judgment at the last day when he mentioned the raised-up serpent, 2 Nephi 25.18-20. One of the heavenly hosts or sons of God. In most ancient Near Eastern cultures, snakes typically symbolized a specific god or goddess of healing, life, or other properties commonly associated with serpents. Some scholars believe it was the same in Israel, with the brazen serpent representing one of the heavenly hosts, divine beings variously referred to as gods, sons of God, the Most High, holy ones, and angels, among other titles. Quote, It has long been recognized, according to Lowell K. Handy, that this object stood for a deity, close quote, which, quote, 
was clearly part of the Judean pantheon and almost certainly a deity of healing. Quote. Charlesworth likewise argues that before Hezekiah's reforms, quote, citizens of Judah most likely perceived the brazen serpent as a celestial being, close quote, from within quote, Yahweh's heavenly court. Close quote. Similarly, Tale Ornan reasoned that the four-winged seraph on a 7th century BC Israelite seal represented a quote, member of the heavenly entourage of Yahweh. Close quote. Indeed, as discussed earlier, Isaiah, possibly inspired by the brazen serpent or serpents in the temple, envisioned members of the divine council as seraphim, or winged fiery serpents. Isaiah 6. Typically, scholars trying to identify the specific deity represented by the brazen serpent link it to Canaanite healing gods or serpent deities. Based on Isaiah's vision, however, the seraph form was not necessarily limited to a specific individual within the heavenly hosts. Furthermore, as discussed in this paper, the seraph serpent clearly conveyed a wide range of meanings, well beyond just healing, all within the context of Israelite worship of Yahweh. Thus, in seeking to identify a deity which ancient Israelites might have associated with the brazen serpent, it makes sense to look for one that embodies all of the attributes of the seraph serpent discussed above. In this light, it is noteworthy that, according to some scholars, early Israelite religion featured a second god, a divine redeemer figure, who was one of the sons of God, a heavenly guardian, God's primary agent or emissary, Malak, angel, and was manifest on earth as the Messiah, the Davidic king. The role and identity of this divine son figure was obscured by the Deuteronomist reformers, but the earliest Christians drew upon surviving traditions about this Son of God in their understandings of Jesus. Given the overlap between the roles of this particular member of the heavenly host and the meanings and functions associated with the seraph serpent discussed in this paper, both are connected to redemption, messengers, judgment, guardianship, and the Messiah, among other things. It seems plausible that at least some ancient Israelites would have associated the brazen serpent with this same son of God. This divine emissary evidently played a role in the theology of ancient metallurgists. And Latter-day Saint scholars have likewise argued that Lehi and Nephi's revelations about Jesus Christ make sense against the backdrop of these pre-reform beliefs. It thus comes as no surprise that Nephi and later Book of Mormon writers would specifically use the title Son of God when identifying Christ with the brazen serpent. Second Nephi 25, 19, Alma 33, 18 and 22, Helaman 8, 14 to 15. The deified battle standards and the brazen serpent. The identification of the brazen serpent as symbolizing a deity or divine being is further implied by Moses placing it on a pole, Numbers 21, 9 which is a translation of nace, which typically means standard, banner, ensign, etc. Ancient Near Eastern armies often used standards as a means of advancing and rallying their armies, but they often had religious and ideological symbolism as well. As Heinz Joseph Fabry explained, quote, In the ancient Near East, standards symbolized concretely the gods advancing into battle. Close quote. Specifically in Egypt, quote, the principal purpose of the standards was to serve as a physical repository of the power of the gods. In reality, the gods were thought to be embodied in the standards, close quote. And as such, quote, 
Egyptian texts often use the words standards and gods interchangeably. Close quote. Similarly, Mordecai Kogan explained that the Assyrian battle standard known as the Weapon of Asher was, quote, topped by the symbolic representation of Asher, close quote, the supreme god of the Assyrian Empire. Such deified standards, as one scholar described them, would have surely shaped Israelite perceptions of the brazen serpent on a pole or standard, nays, contributing to the notion that it symbolized a divine being as discussed above. Inherent in the act of placing something on a standard is raising or lifting it up so that it can be seen from all around. This is reflected in the etymology of nace, standard, ensign, banner, which is likely derived from the rarely used verbal root nasas, which means to lift something up from the, for the purpose of displaying it. Close quote. In Zechariah 9.16, nasas is translated lift up as an ensign. Setting up a standard is frequently described using the verbal root nasa, a common term in the Hebrew Bible with the primary meaning being to raise or lift up. This can be seen in several of the Isaiah passages that Nephi quoted just before retelling the brazen serpent story. And he will lift up the Nassah, an ensign, nes, to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. Second Nephi 15.26, Isaiah 5.26. And he will set up the Nassah, an ensign, nes, for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Second Nephi 21.12, Isaiah 11.12. Lift ye up, su, a banner, nes, upon the high mountain. Exalt the voice of them. Shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. Second Nephi 23.2, Isaiah 13.2. Significantly, the grand army envisioned in Isaiah 5:25 through 30, 2 Nephi 15:25 through 30, raising its ensign to rally the nations to war against the wicked, was likely inspired by the Assyrians, the most powerful military force known during the time of Isaiah. Based on wall relief carvings in the palace of Sennacherib, circa 705 to 681 BC. It seems that at least some Assyrian battle standards contemporary to Isaiah and within a hundred years of Nephi's time were actually serpents mounted on spears. In Isaiah 11:10 and 12, 2 Nephi 21:10 and 12, the raising of an ensign motif is reapplied this time to the Davidic king in the Messianic age. As already discussed, the Davidic monarchy was also associated with serpent symbolism in Isaiah's day something likely still known to some in Lehi's time. And Isaiah 14.29 applies this messianic imagery to a flying seraph. Consequently, Nephi may very well have understood Isaiah's raised-up ensign to be serpentine in nature, and thus fused them with the brazen serpent on a pole in his interpretation of Numbers 21. This would explain why Nephi spoke of the serpent which Moses did raise up before them, 2 Nephi 25.20, even though the expression nace does not appear in Numbers 21. Likewise, Alma also talked about, quote, a type raised up in the wilderness, Alma 33.19. And Nephi, son of Helaman, says Moses, quote, lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, Helaman 8.14. All of this 
would have made it quite natural for the original Nephi to interpret the deified serpent standard as the everlasting God that he saw lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world. 1 Nephi 11.33, CF 19.10, 3 Nephi 27.14-15, and 22. It was Nephi, son of Helaman, however, who would directly connect the lifting up of both serpent and savior. Quote, and as he lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, even so should he be lifted up which should come. Helaman 8.14. In Hebrew, nasa is a theologically potent term with a broad semantic range. Not only could it mean to be lifted up or raised up, and by extension exalted, but it could also mean to carry bear, endure, and even to suffer. It could specifically be used in the phrase nasa aon to express bearing guilt, sin, or iniquity, including taking on the guilt, sins, or iniquities of others, and carried connotations related to forgiveness, reconciliation, and atonement. Of course, Nephi knew, as surely as his brother Jacob did, that by being lifted up onto the cross, Jesus would, quote, suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. Jacob 1.8, CF 1st Nephi 19, 9-10. After mentioning the raised-up serpent, Nephi also explained that they wrote their records so that their posterity would, quote, be reconciled to God, close quote, and know where to, quote, look for our remission of their sins, 2 Nephi 25, 23, and 26. Alma said that the raised-up serpent was a type for the Son of God who, quote, shall suffer and die to atone for their sins. Alma 33.22 The brazen serpent in the Nephite interpretive tradition, as illustrated by the various references made throughout this paper, when later Nephite writers mentioned the brazen serpent narrative, in each instance, they generally interpret along the same lines Nephi did specifically using the same name titles, Messiah, Son of God, and talking about qualities and attributes of Christ, atonement, eternal life, rising from the dead, resurrection, judgment, that relate to ancient Near Eastern serpent symbolism. In many cases, these are features that are specifically associated with the seraph serpent in pre-exilic Israelite texts, i.e. Numbers 21, 4-9, Isaiah 6, and 14, 28 and iconography. Thus, with his two retellings of the brazen serpent narrative, Nephi evidently established a standard interpretation of the story that other Nephite writers adopted with minimal change. It should be noted, however, that there are some key developments in how the story is used and interpreted within the text. They are modest, even subtle developments that make sense as natural outgrowths of how Nephi used the story. Similar innovations of interpretation show up in the ancient Judeo-Christian tradition and do so in response to similar circumstances and pressures. Thus, the Book of Mormon authentically reflects a living interpretive tradition. Brazen Serpent Typology, Prophecy, and Apologetics in Nephi and Christian Sources As noted earlier, both Nephi, 2 Nephi 25.20, and the Gospel of John 3.14-15 use the raised-up or lifted-up serpent as a means of illustrating the Lord's saving power through Jesus Christ. 
In neither instance, however, was the brazen serpent taken to be a literal typological prediction, a prophecy in action, of the coming of Christ. This would quickly change in the early Christian interpretations. In the epistle of Barnabas, dated to between A.D. 70 and 135, it explicitly states that, quote, Moses maketh a type of Jesus, how that he must suffer, and that he himself shall make alive in an emblem when Israel was falling. Epistle of Barnabas 12.5 That type was the brazen serpent, and in Barnabas, Moses explains the symbol in a way that clearly alludes to the future crucifixion. Quote, Whensoever, said he, one of you shall be bitten, let him come to the serpent which is placed on the tree, and let him believe and hope that the serpent being himself dead can make alive, and forthwith he shall be saved. Here again thou hast in these things also the glory of Jesus, how that in him and unto him are all things. Epistle of Barnabas 12.7 Justin Martyr, another 2nd century Christian writer, also argued, quote, The type and sign erected to counteract the effects of the serpents that bit Israel was clearly intended for the salvation of those who believe that this sign was to show that through the crucified one, death was to come to the serpent. But salvation to those who had been bitten by the serpent and had sought protection of him who sent his son into the world to be crucified. Dialogue with Trifo, 91.4 In these post-New Testament texts, the typology is explicitly stated, and it is assumed that the action of raising the serpent in the wilderness was intended as a prophetic prediction of Christ's coming. According to Ullman, who surveyed more than 70 references to the bronze serpent story in early and medieval Christian texts, this becomes the dominant interpretation of the story among Christian exegetes in antiquity. And it was adopted specifically, quote, as an apologetic against the Jews for their disbelief in Christ as the Messiah, close quote. This is exactly what happens among the Nephite exegetes as well. As S. Kent Brown noted, quote, this brass serpent was interpreted by later Book of Mormon prophets to typify the Savior, close quote. When Alma the Younger first referenced the brass serpent, he combined elements from Nephi's two interpretations, using it both to teach of the coming Messiah and also mentioning those who would not look to the serpent and thus perished. Alma 33, 18-22 Alma was appealing to the story while preaching amongst the Zoramites, who explicitly denied the coming of Christ. Alma 31, 16 And he thus included it as part of a larger argument to persuade them to believe in the Son of God. Alma 33, 14-23 In this apologetic setting, Alma went beyond Nephi's use of the brazen serpent simply as an appropriate symbol of the Lord's healing and salvific power. For Alma, it was, quote, a type raised up in the wilderness, close quote, which illustrated that the Son of God, quote, was spoken of by Moses, Alma 33, 18-19. In other words, Alma interprets it as a prophetic type intended to represent and therefore predict the future coming of the Son of God. Similarly, Nephi, son of Helaman, appealed to the story when preaching to a people who had rejected the Messiah, Helaman 6.34, and used it as part of a larger argument meant to persuade them to believe in the coming of Christ, Helaman 8.13-20. Nephi declared that Moses, quote, hath spoken concerning the coming of the Messiah, close quote, and rhetorically asked, quote, did he not bear record that the Son of God should come, close quote. He then cited Moses, quote, 
lifting up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, close quote, has evidence to support his claims. Helaman 8, 13-15 Thus, as Nephite prophets engaged apologetically with those who rejected the Messiah, they came to appeal to the brazen serpent as a literal prophetic prediction of Christ's coming, a, quote, prophetic metaphor for Jesus' crucifixion, close quote, as Brown puts it. This subtle development from Nephi, son of Lehi's original use and interpretation of the brazen serpent, is consistent with how interpretation of this symbol developed in early Christian sources, where in post-New Testament times, it quickly came to be viewed as a literal prophetic type for Jesus, intended as a prediction of his death, and used in apologetic arguments with Jews to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. The allusion to Moses having spoken of Christ in connection with the raising up of the brazen serpent, Alma 33.19, Helaman 8.13, even hints at the possibility that, like in the epistle of Barnabas, the Nephites had come to believe that Moses gave a speech prophesying of Christ when he first showed them the raised up serpent. Later Christian and even Jewish interpreters would eventually develop even more elaborate allegorical and metaphorical interpretations which became increasingly more difficult to justify as having any meaningful grounding in the biblical account. Such novelties are lacking in the Book of Mormon. Consequently, the minimal interpretive developments that do occur among the Nephites are consistent with the more exegetically sound developments in the interpretation of Numbers 21, 4-9 found in ancient Christian sources. And they are developments that emerge in response to the same kind of outside pressures. As such, not only are the foundational features of the Nephite interpretation grounded in the pre-exilic setting from which Nephi established it, but it is also not stagnant, having a pattern of realistic, albeit conservative, historical development. Looking to the serpent and beholding God in Jewish and Nephi tradition. Ancient Jewish commentators developed another interpretation which seems to have its seeds, at least, in the pre-exilic religion. In rationalizing why the brazen serpent episode did not constitute idol worship, rabbinic interpreters reasoned that by looking upward to the serpent, the people were actually looking to God. Thus, one writer explained, quote, Whenever Israel looked on high and subjected their heart to their Father in heaven, they were healed. Midrash Rosh Hashanah 3.8 Commenting on this tradition, Nellie S. Fox notes, quote, It was the glance of the afflicted to their father in heaven, which is why the seraph was placed on a standard, rather than the snake itself, which affected the cure. Philo of Alexandria, writing in the first century AD, more explicitly reasoned that those who looked upon the serpent actually saw God. He claimed, quote, When a person beholds the serpent of Moses, and through beholding this, beholds God himself, he shall live. Legum Allegoria 281. Philo's expression that a person looking at the serpent, quote, beholds God himself, close quote, but shall live, is striking in light of Old Testament statements that a man cannot see God and live. Exodus 33.20, Leviticus 16.2 and 13. This was a common belief in ancient Israel, and often those who see God or even angels are relieved to discover that they are still alive after the encounter. See Genesis 16.13, 32.30, Deuteronomy 5.22-27, Judges 6.22-23, and 13.22-23. 
This fear is expressed in Isaiah's vision of the Lord on his throne. And it was through the actions of one of the seraphim, winged serpentine beings, likely represented by the brazen serpent or serpents, as discussed above, that he was enabled to stand in the presence of the Lord and survive. See Isaiah 6, 1-7. What Isaiah's vision suggests, which later Jewish sources appear to distantly echo, is that the brazen serpent's healing and life-giving function aided not only those seeking to recover from some sort of ailment, but also those who are seeking to enter the presence of God and survive. As Nicholas Wyatt explained, in Isaiah's vision, the seraphim are, quote, acting as intermediaries between the prophet and Yahweh, close quote, enabling him to stand in the Lord's presence unharmed. According to Lowell K. Handy, the brazen serpent was an, quote, intermediary between God and the people, close quote, a common role of snakes in ancient thought at least as understood by Isaiah and later Jewish exegetes, as discussed above, the brazen serpent was specifically seen as mediating an individual's ability to look to and even see God and ultimately live through the experience. The Book of Mormon seems to allude to the concept of using the brazen serpent as a mean by which one can see God and live. When counseling his son Helaman, Alma spoke of the, quote, easiness of the way, close quote, prepared for their fathers, that, quote, if they would look, they might live, Alma 3746. In the immediate context, Alma was referring to the Liahona, but Alma's language clearly alludes back to the story in Numbers 21, 4-9 as well. Alma thus identified both the Liahona and brazen serpent as means by which, quote, ye can look to God and live, Alma 3747. This interpretation is arguably more innovative than the first one offered by Alma when preaching to the Zoramites, as it is not clearly derivative of Nephi's explicit reference to the story in 1 Nephi 17.41 and 2 Nephi 25.20. Yet Alma's interpretation here still seems to be a natural outgrowth of the interpretive seeds Nephi planted. As noted previously, Nephi cast the Liahona as a type for the brazen serpent. Nephi also linked the Liahona to seeing God in several subtle ways. First, when describing the discovery of the Liahona at the tent door, 1 Nephi 16.10, Nephi echoed divine encounters of Abraham and Moses, wherein they saw the Lord, Genesis 18.1, Exodus 33.7-10. Second, Don Bradley argues that when Nephi built a temple in the New World, 2 Nephi 5.16, the Liahona was one of the sacred relics placed inside, and that it, quote, functioned as a physical embodiment of God's presence, close quote. If Bradley is correct, then Nephi was symbolically equating looking upon the ball, 1 Nephi 16.26, with beholding God's presence. Lastly, Lehi or Nephi evidently coined the name Liahona, which arguably means look to the Lord. Therefore, the notion of seeing God may have been embedded into the very name of this brass divining instrument. All of this suggests that while Nephi never explicitly equated looking upon the brass serpent with being able to see God and live, he provides the foundation for such an interpretation to emerge by making the typological association between the brass serpent and the Liahona, an object Nephi linked with seeing God in several ways. Alma's interpretation thus naturally emerges out of Nephi's earlier typology, 
just as the similar interpretations by later Jewish commentators are the natural outgrowth of the pre-exilic understanding of the brazen serpent as a life-preserving intermediary between God and man, as reflected by the actions of the seraph in Isaiah 6, a text that Alma also had access to in the very records he was bestowing on his son Helaman when he compared looking to the Liahona, or brazen serpent, with looking to God, Alma 37, 1-5. Conclusion As the analysis above illustrates, the Book of Mormon's commentary on the brazen serpent narrative resonates with serpent symbolism and iconography from the ancient Near East, and especially that of the seraph serpent in pre-exilic Israel. While some of the observations made above rest on firmer ground and others are more exploratory, all of them come together to make a persuasive case that the Book of Mormon's use and interpretation of the symbol is an authentic strain of ancient Israelite tradition, one that shows realistic signs of historical development along lines that make sense given the context and circumstances upon which the tradition was expounded. Contextualizing the Book of Mormon's references to the brazen serpent narrative within ancient Near Eastern serpent symbolism also adds additional meaning and explanatory power. For instance, it makes sense that the brazen serpent story is alluded to more often in the Book of Mormon than any other book of scripture, since Lehi's personal background dovetails remarkably well with the community which most strongly associated the seraph serpent as a symbol for Yahweh. The typological use of the brass ball, Liahona, as a substitute for the brazen serpent in Nephi's Exodus typology is illuminated by knowledge of the homophony between serpent and diviner, both Nachash, and the common association between serpents, divination, and copper or bronze in antiquity. Similarly, details from the immediate narrative context of 1st Nephi 17, like Nephi's making tools from ore, take on new significance when the ancient connections between metallurgy and serpent symbolism are known and the religious or ritual dimension of metalworking are recognized. Subtle differences in the story, such as the added reference to Israel being straightened with a rod and the serpents being flying seraphs, are explained by iconography and symbolism in pre-exilic Israel. Finally, Awareness of the overlap between the geographic setting of 1st Nephi and the habitat of the seraph serpent helps Nephi's use of this story hit home in a way modern readers may not always appreciate. Perhaps most impressive, however, is the way Nephi's reference to the story in 1st Nephi 17.41 is effectively framed as a microcosm of the larger controversies of his time, which involve the legitimacy of the brazen serpent as a part of proper worship of the Lord. This framing brings together several of the other details just mentioned. Nephi's metallurgy in 1st Nephi 17.9-16 signals his status as one who has been in the presence of the Lord, received divine knowledge, and is commissioned as his messenger. The symbolism of Nephi's actions was probably not lost on his brothers, and thus their accusations that follow, 1st Nephi 17.17-18, makes sense as a reaction to the symbolic implications of his forging tools for more. The differences in how Nephi recounts the story also take on new meaning in this framing. The added reference to a rod that is paralleled with the flying fiery serpents evokes the imagery of the rod to serpent transformation, 
given as a sign to the Israelites that Moses was commissioned by the Lord. Exodus 4, 1-5 and 30. And flying fiery serpents more strongly connects the winged seraph iconography associated with the Davidic monarchy and often borne on the seals of officials commissioned by the king before becoming suppressed by the Deuteronomistic reformers. Combined with the added detail that some of the people would not look to the serpent for healing and therefore perished, these differences seem to be reinforcing a singular message. The seraph serpent is a legitimate symbol of the Lord and his emissaries, and thus rejecting it, as some had in Nephi's day, was tantamount to rejecting the Lord. Those who did so would perish from the bite of the seraph serpent a symbolic point to be sure, but one made all the more real, given that such could indeed be the fate of anyone in Lehi's party during their time in the wilderness, including a bountiful. Nephi has later used the brazen serpent in 2 Nephi 25.20 as an illustration of the Lord's power to deliver and save through the atoning Messiah, Jesus Christ, and subsequent Nephite writers' adoption of the brass serpent as a literal type of Christ is also illuminated through ancient Near Eastern serpent symbolism. This association with Christ needn't be seen as a post-Christian anachronism. In the ancient Near East, the serpent symbolized healing, life, resurrection, salvation, atonement, and judgment. It was often used to symbolize divine beings and even had messianic connotations. These are, of course, also attributes of Christ, each of which gets mentioned by Book of Mormon authors in close reference to the brazen serpent. Importantly, all of these symbolic associations are evident in Judaism in pre-Christian times, and in many cases are present in the seraph serpent symbolism of pre-exilic Israel. Thus, it is not hard to see why Book of Mormon authors saw fit to connect this symbol with the Messiah, the preeminent Son of God, which they had seen and learned about through visions and revelations. Since Nephi's reference to the brazen serpent in 2 Nephi 25.20 comes as part of his prophetic commentary on Isaiah 2-14, 2 Nephi 12-24, it is particularly noteworthy that many of the important associations between the seraph serpent and Christ are mentioned in Isaiah 6 and 14.28-32, 2 Nephi 16-24-28-32. Though the connections would not be evident without knowing the meaning of seraphim in Hebrew and being able to recognize motifs in these passages that are illuminated by a broader knowledge of ancient Near Eastern serpent symbolism. More impressive still is how a knowledge of Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern culture creates a context in which Nephi could conceptually link the serpent on a pole with the ensign, both nace, that was lifted up to gather the nations. Isaiah 5.26 and 11.12, 2 Nephi 15.26, A symbol that would have been understood as representing a divine being and based on Assyrian and Egyptian examples may have been conceptualized as having serpentine form. Thus, in Nephite parlance, the brazen serpent was raised up or lifted up to heal the nations. 2 Nephi 25.20 C.F. Alma 33.18, Helaman 8.14, and very naturally linked to the everlasting God, Nephi witness being, quote, lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world, 1 Nephi 11.33. 
Significantly, the Hebrew expression for being lifted up also has connotations of carrying, bearing, enduring, and suffering, including bearing the guilt, sin, or iniquity of others. And as such, is an appropriate expression for Christ's atoning act on the cross. Thus, Nephi's interpretation of the brazen serpent narrative makes sense as a midrash of sorts, combining the story in Numbers 21, 4 through 9 with key passages in Isaiah read through the lens of Nephi's own visions. Finally, a careful reading of Alma 33, 18 through 22 and Helaman 8, 13 through 15 shows that Nephi's two interpretations of the brazen serpent account developed into a standard interpretation of that event among the Nephites. However, their interpretive tradition did not remain stagnant. Later Book of Mormon prophets echoed the same themes found in 1 Nephi 17.41 and especially 2 Nephi 25.20, but developed them within the context of their own ongoing polemics with those who contested the reality and existence of the future Messiah. To counter such claims, Nephite prophets appealed to the brazen serpent as a literal type of Christ, raised up in deliberate, prophetic anticipation of Jesus Christ, accompanied by prophetic words about the Son of God spoken by Moses. See Alma 33, 18-22, Helaman 8, 13-15. A similar development is documented in ancient Christian writings, which used the brazen serpent as a prophetic type for Jesus as evidence that the Messiah had come in apologetic arguments with Jewish commentators. Furthermore, Alma also pushes Nephi's typological links between the brazen serpent and the Leahona further, and conceptually links both to the act of looking to God, Alma 37, 38-42, an interpretation that is consistent with how post-exilic Jewish commentators came to understand the brazen serpent narrative. Thus, the contextual background of the ancient world, while explored from a variety of different angles and sources, offers more than a disparate series of parallels that yields a random insight or two. Many of the various component parts unite together to create a cohesive context for understanding the Nephite interpretation of the brazen serpent as a whole, both its origins and its subtle developments over the centuries. Taken as a whole, this cohesive context suggests that the Book of Mormon's use of the brazen serpent narrative is not a literary fiction an authentic strain of ancient Israelite tradition. Neil Rapley is a research project manager for Book of Mormon Central. He is involved in ongoing research on many facets of the Book of Mormon's historical context, including ancient Jerusalem, especially around the 7th century BC, ancient Arabia, the ancient Near East more broadly, pre-Columbian Mesoamerica, and the 19th century witnesses to the discovery and translation of the Book of Mormon plates. He's published with BYU Studies, The Interpreter Foundation, Book of Mormon Central, Greg Cofford Books, and Covenant Communications. This has been a recording of Serpents of Fire and Brass, a contextual study of the brazen serpent tradition in the Book of Mormon by Neil Rapley, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 50, 2022, read by Victor Wirth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Latter-day Saint Scripture 
can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.